0: So we are going to start in First Thessalonians, uh, we are in chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to read through uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and I'm just going to start by reading the passage and then I'll pray for us and we'll dive in. So if you would, go ahead and turn to First Thessalonians 2, verse 17, there's also up there on the screen if you need it. All right, let me read through verse 10 of chapter 3. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, this week we have heard and spoken and read and listened to many words But right now, we need your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me, that as we open this ancient letter of 1 Thessalonians, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we can see more of Jesus. That's why we're here, and that's why we pray to you, Jesus, in your good name we do pray. Amen. The first conversation that I had with my future wife, Melissa, was in our first semester of freshman year at Wheaton College, and our first conversation took place over finals week. So uh, we had some great conversation, there was some mutual interest, but then immediately after that we went on Christmas break, and we were going to be apart for a month or so. Melissa went home to North Carolina, and I didn't have her phone number, but no fret. I got some pretty slick moves, so I sent her a Facebook message, and I've actually got that message up there on the screen. I said, hello, Melissa. Now that you're back home, are you enjoying the break sunny North Carolina weather? Foolproof. That's how it's done, guys. <laughs> So she sent a message back, and then I responded, and the messages got longer. And we sent messages the whole break. And by the end of Christmas break, we ended up sending the equivalent of 41 single-spaced pages of messages to each other. And we, we have that document that's on my computer. Um, Eventually, we did exchange numbers and we started dating. So I've got a picture there of uh, young beardless Mike and, you know, young college-age Melissa there um, going to the President's Ball. For a decent amount of time in our dating relationship, we were long distance. In fact, one of the things we were most relieved about when we got married is finally we we don't have to be long distance anymore. It's just a lot easier. Now, not all of you have had long-distance romantic relationships, but I'm guessing that most or maybe all of you have experienced long-distance personal relationships, just somebody in your life you're close to personally, but then they move or live far away. When you, when you move out on your own uh, out of your parents' house, uh, when your kids or your grandkids live far away when your friends from college kind of scatter all over the country even when we send missionaries like Chase and Michelle to the other side of the world long distance is really really hard have have you ever felt that absence in a long distance relationship that you have that longing of like, i i just wish we could be together i just wish we could see each other face to face that you're having a hard day i wish i could just give you a hug And yes, we do live in an era in which we can be sort of hyper-connected, but if there's, you know, one thing that we've learned from the pandemic shutdown, it's the limitations of digital connection. Like, it's just not the same as being face-to-face. And it's awesome that we get to text and call, and beyond that, we get to FaceTime, and that's great. Like, we should be grateful to God for these technological advances, but it's not the same as being in person. And now nowadays we have a very common modern reality. It's kind of unlike any other time in human history. We're pretty much able to see and talk to people as often as we want, and yet we're not able to be with people as often as we want. Now, that last part has been a reality for all of human history, including when Paul was writing this letter to the Thessalonians. So, Paul has already expressed his thankfulness for the faith of the believers in Thessalonica, and he shared the deep affection that he has for them. So, now, in this part of the letter, Paul is explaining why he hasn't been able to physically get back to Thessalonica. So, a lot of this section of the letter is specific to the relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians, but I still think that this section has a lot to teach us about long-distance relationships with fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. Now, remember that the last time I preached, I talked about how leaders pursue intimate relationships. Do you remember that? But what happens when you can't be as close as you want to be, when your spiritual brother or sister is far away? And the reason this is pressing, not only for those who are far away, but for us, is you might not stay at Rock Hill for the rest of your life. Some of you might move away. What do you do about the relationships that you've formed here? Or, or what if one of your friends or close, close friends has, has gone away? How do you maintain that relationship? And so Paul's going to give us insight into these situations. And the big question, I've, I've got it up on the screen, is this. How can we have close spiritual relationships even when we're physically distant. So what we're going to do is we're going to just walk verse by verse through this section, and I'll make observations as we go along. And then from those observations, we'll pull out some principles that'll help us learn how to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we're far away. All right, that's the game plan. So let's begin at the beginning with verse 17. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, Now, remember in the last section that Robert covered last week, Paul talked about the persecution that the church was experiencing, and Paul himself had to escape the city of Thessalonica. We're told in Acts 17, he had to escape by night, kind of sneak out of the city because a mob was attacking and arresting Christians. And So, Paul had basically no chance to say goodbye to this church, and so he's right that they were torn away from him. They had to, to leave their heart behind in Thessalonica. I don't know if the parents who have dropped kids off at college have have felt that. Like, I just left part of my heart behind, you know, at that college. Going on in verse 17. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us, or literally Satan blocked our way. Now, it's at this point, if I were the Thessalonians receiving this letter, I would go, wait, What? (laughs) Wait, Satan hindered you? Can you explain just a little bit more? Give me some details here, because I feel like that's an important thing that Paul just kind of skips over. Like, he does not answer any of our questions. He just drops it in there. He just moves on. Uh, apparently, for Paul, him not being able to travel back to Thessalonica had a spiritual reason behind it. The, the adversary, which is what the word Satan means, the enemy of God, was preventing this reunion. And again, we are not told anything about the means or details of this. So it, it could have been persecution preventing travel. It could have been bad weather. It, it, it could have been Paul not having the funds to travel back. I, I don't know. Paul was important enough that I could see Satan just kind of like blocking his way, like literally like, nope, can't get past. I, I don't know what it was. And Paul doesn't satisfy our curiosity We do know a little bit later in the letter, in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul prays, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct the way or clear the way to you. But what does this mean for us? Does this mean that every plane delay (laughs) or flat tire is Satan hindering us? You know, some Christians believe that. You know, you take your car to the mechanic and you pray against the spiritual force that's, you know, breaking down your car. But I think Paul's a little bit more balanced than that. Throughout his letters, he acknowledges physical realities, but he also acknowledges the spiritual realm, not because the spiritual realm controls everything, but because it does exist in Paul's view, and it affects this world. There's a famous part of the prologue to the Screwtape Letters in which C.S. Lewis explains this balance in the Bible. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, that is the devils, themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Why doesn't Paul explain what he means by Satan hindered us? I think it's intentional why he doesn't go into detail. He wants Christians always to be aware that there are real, personal, evil spiritual forces that work against God's people, but Paul doesn't want us to be overly concerned about it. He puts it this way in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It's like that slogan. I've got it up there. So, Great Britain considered using this, but then decided to use other slogans to kind of encourage the British people during World War II. Keep calm and carry on is is Paul's approach to spiritual warfare. You know, in other words, know that the spiritual forces of evil are at work in this world, but our calling as Christians is not to worry too much about it. It's simply to do faithfully what God has called us to do, to stand firm in our faith. Keep calm recognize that demons exist, don't worry about it, and then carry on with declaring, displaying, and delighting in the gospel. Now, that still raises a ton of questions for us, but Paul moves on quickly. He, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I know that, you know, a lot of these things, they do raise questions for us, so if you want to talk about it, feel free to come talk to me afterwards. It'd be a good conversation. So, changing topics with Paul in verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now to some, this might sound like a you know religious platitude. It's like something your grandma might write in a card to you. You know, you are our glory and joy, you know. But actually what Paul's saying here is is very, very profound. He's saying that when Jesus returns to judge this world, to make all things right again, the joy that Paul will experience most is seeing his brothers and sisters endure to the end. In other words, the spiritual condition of the Thessalonians is a vital, significant part of Paul's hope for the future. He he loved and cared for these believers so much that he is eagerly awaiting the day in the new heavens and the new earth when he looks out and he sees the Thessalonians there and he goes, You made it. Now my joy is complete. Like he's almost more excited for the Thessalonians to see Jesus than he is to see Jesus himself. And I I just think that's deeply profound, the the love that Paul is modeling for his brothers and sisters in the faith. And we'll we'll see even more of it as we go on, so let's continue with the first verse of chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So Paul is in this huge pagan city of Athens, and even though it would result in him being away from yet another close friend, he just can't stand not knowing how the Thessalonians are doing. So, so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, and just in case the Thessalonians are thinking like, really, you sent your lackey, you know, your, your minion, uh, he, he calls him my brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. You know, here's his resume. He's legit. He's good. You're going to like Timothy. And Timothy had one job in particular. Um, He was supposed to encourage and exhort the believers, but he was supposed to focus on one topic. Look again at verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now, remember that Paul only had three weeks in Thessalonica before he had to leave the city. I think it's fascinating to see what Paul focused on teaching these new believers. If you, as Christian, had three weeks to teach a new believer, you know, everything you need to know about the faith in three weeks, like, what would be Christianity 101, And apparently for Paul, one of the lessons that he taught was on suffering. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. This is exactly what Robert was talking about last week. Persecution and suffering is normal for believers. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's one of the Beatitudes. You know the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit and all that. There's one of the the Beatitudes that we don't quote as often. It's this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or we can look at John 15. This is one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples Remember the word that I said to you A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is basic Christianity. Guys, if you're a Christian or not, this is one of the things that Paul taught new believers. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you are destined for affliction like Jesus was. We follow in the footsteps of our master. If that's not part of your beliefs about Christianity, if you think that your life will only get better if you believe the gospel and follow Jesus, or maybe you've been following Jesus for some time and you've just kind of forgotten this lesson, and all of a sudden you're surprised when life is hard. Then hear this gentle reminder. Salvation in Jesus Christ, which is belief that his life, death, and resurrection can save you from your sins and give you a new relationship with God, that belief, it gives you a hope that wrongs will be made right. But that hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul's worried. As he says in verse 3, that these afflictions that the Thessalonians are experiencing would cause their faith to be moved or to be shaken. Or like he says in verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He said, I was so worried that your confession of faith would, wouldn't last. It would crumble under the pressure you're experiencing. He was fearful that they would be like the plants in the parable of the soils that Jesus tells. And these are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Have you ever had the experience of you know, sending a text to a, a loved one, whether or not they're a Christian, just, just to check in on them, just to see how they're doing, and you just get ghosted. You don't hear anything else. And then maybe it's because of that particular family member or friend, you just have that sinking feeling of like, oh, no, I haven't heard from this person in weeks. This doesn't feel good. You just have that concern and anxiety. Now, if, if we feel that, With texts and Instagram, imagine how Paul must have felt going months and hearing no news about this new church that he had planted. But then finally, Timothy comes back. Verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In verse 6, I don't know if you caught it, Paul does something that's slightly scandalous. So, did you see where it says, Timothy brought us the good news of your faith and love? That word for good news there, that's the same word for gospel, euangelizo in the Greek. It's translated good news here, but it's the same word that he uses throughout the letter for gospel. Now, I don't think he's using this in a kind of technical way, which is probably why they translated it as good news. He's not saying something like, oh, the faith and love of the Thessalonians, this is a new gospel for us to believe in. Nothing like that. He's making a point of clearly emphasizing how thankful he was to receive this positive report. He's saying, I was so grateful to hear that you are still walking with Jesus, how grateful he was that it was like the first time I received the gospel. That's how grateful he was. It's just a deep concern over the spiritual welfare of others. He goes even further in verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now, this could be hyperbolic. That was pretty common in ancient letters to talk in terms of, sort of life and death. We do that nowadays, you know, I'm starving, I'm going to die, you know. But even if it's hyperbole, we're meant to see how deeply Paul's love ran. Paul cared so much for these believers that when he didn't know how they were doing, he felt like he was dying. But now, Paul is able to enjoy life fully again. Because he knows that the Thessalonians love him and have steadfast faith, even amidst persecution. In verses 9 and 10, he expresses his gratitude to God. He says he's praying desperately for God to help him get back to Thessalonica and to supply what is lacking in your faith, meaning I still have things I want to teach you. You still have things to learn about how to be a a disciple of Jesus, how to listen to Jesus's words. There are things I want to teach you, and I'm hoping and praying that I can get back there. Now, next week, Josh Drury is going to preach on verse 10 through the end of the chapter, so I'll leave that for him. But I do want to highlight one phrase in that verse, face-to-face. It appears here in verse 10. It also appears in the very first verse that we read, chapter 2, verse 17. I think Paul is touching on one of the deepest human desires that any of us will ever feel. No matter who you are, whether you are a Christian or not, we long to be face-to-face with the people we love. I had a counseling professor in seminary who, who really fulfilled the stereotype of the, the quirky, kind of absent-minded professor. I remember him coming into class one day, and we all quieted down, and he just kind of sat on the desk up front. There was a long pause as he was doing this, and all of us are kind of looking around like, did class start? Should we He's just sitting there? Then finally he said, you know, I've been thinking about the meaning of the universe. And I think it's all about relationships. And the rest of us in the class are like, should we take notes? Like, is this going to be on the test? He goes on to explain uh, that God is in a relationship with himself. We believe in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also believe that God made creation to be in relationship with itself. Creation works together, but also in relationship with God. And then he made human beings to be in relationship with God and with one another. And so he was thinking maybe what it means to be human is that we were made to be face-to-face with God, face-to-face with each other. And maybe what's kind of at the root of sin or what's at the root of the fall is that we can't be face-to-face anymore. Now, whether or not you think my mad professor is correct, we, we do see throughout the Bible this theme of presence. God said in the paradise garden of Eden that there was one thing that was not good. It was that human beings were alone. He made us to be in relationship with each other. He also made us to be in relationship with him. Adam and Eve, were told, walked in the garden with God without any barrier between them. But then after their rebellion, the biblical authors declare that the holy God cannot be seen face to face by sinful people. You might remember God telling Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, there are a couple of stories in which God reveals part of himself to human beings. Uh, Hagar says that she has seen the God who saw her. Jacob wrestles with God, and then afterwards he goes, you know what? I think I saw God. Moses and Isaiah both see the train of God's robes, and so we catch these glimpses throughout the Old Testament, and we're wondering, are we ever going to be able to see God face to face again? And then Jesus came. Jesus, who said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus whom Paul called the image of the invisible God. Jesus who will one day return and who will allow us to see God face to face again. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. I pray and it It doesn't feel like God answers me. Or sometimes God feels close to me, and other times he feels very, very far away. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus returns, we will not only see God face to face, as if that's not enough, we will also see each other face-to-face, no barriers between us, all Christians, even those who live far away, even those who have lived in a previous time, even those who have died and are in the presence of God, the whole family of God from every time and place will be gathered together. And honestly, church family, this Sunday morning gathering, this this is just a foretaste of that. Hey, I haven't seen you all week. So let's catch up. But when we are in the new heavens and the earth, we will be together forever. The family of God. No conflict, no pain, no ability to hurt each other, no distance. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the hope you can have if you believe in Jesus, if you are a Christian. When we have close spiritual relationships that are physically distant, one day, for those who are in Christ. There will be no more goodbyes. There will be no more disconnection. There will be no more longing. All longings will be fulfilled. Just pure, eternal communion. Let's bring this back home to, to our situation, to the relationships that we have. How can we have close spiritual relationships even when we are physically distant? I think this is where we begin. We long for present an eternal reunion. We do the best we can to reunite with people here and now while we have the opportunity, but our ultimate hope is that we will see each other again. I had another professor, not not as crazy as, as the former one, but he was just a little bit crazy. Um, his name was Jerry, and Jerry was a storyteller. Whenever Jerry would tell a story about someone uh, he had met, someone he had discipled, someone he had evangelized, a fellow Christian. And if, if that person had died, he would tell us. He'd say, this person died four years ago from breast cancer. Oh, I don't know where this person is. They might be dead by now. They are in their 90s. And he would always end the story with this. I'll introduce them to you someday. And it just hit home for me. Yeah. Yeah, you will. You will. And I, you have people that you probably want to introduce to me and, and vice versa. What a glorious thing that is to hope for. Paul models for us what it looks like to wish and hope that he could be reunited right now in the present with those he loves. And yet throughout this letter and his other letters, he shows that our ultimate hope is in the return of Jesus where we will be gathered together forever. Now, Paul does try and stay connected through whatever means necessary. He sends Timothy out there. And and to be honest, Paul would probably be stunned by the capabilities that we have to stay connected with people. He's like, what? Y'all can push a button and talk to each other? I just send Timothy on a donkey just to get some news. Like, that's crazy. So in your spiritual relationships with other Christians who are far away, when it's hard for you to be face-to-face together, how can you use the means that you have to stay connected? And here's where we get into the, the realm of wisdom. You know, we can't stay connected with every Christian who lives far away. But who, like Paul, are you deeply concerned for? and encouraged by their faith. Maybe the Spirit is even bringing somebody to mind. It could be a fellow believer in your family. It could be a friend from your past. It could even be somebody from Rock Hill who moved away. They haven't been here for a while. Who can you call or text today to find out how their walk with Jesus is going, how their life's going? What would it take to set up a regular time to, to check in with each other? I have calendar uh, reminders in my calendar to check in with certain friends every other week. Melissa and I also love the app Marco Polo. You send video messages to each other and they can watch it on their own time and then send a video message back. It's, it's a lot easier than trying to set up a time to talk on the phone and so on. You know, again, these things don't replace the face-to-face, but they are gifts from God that can help us stay connected with brothers and sisters. We really are connected to the global church here. And that's at the heart of this passage in 1 Thessalonians. These verses show us what relationships should look like in the church. Deep affection, longing to see each other, excitement at steadfast faith, eagerness to help each other grow as disciples. For now we live if you are steadfast in the Lord. This is a beautiful picture of of family and connection. Honestly, it's what we want our church to look like. What if we were as excited for a brother or sister to make progress in their walk with Jesus than we would be if they had a baby or got a new job? What if it was the high of your week when somebody in your city group says, you know what, it's been a really hard week, but I've been trusting in Jesus a lot more this week. What if that was your high? You know, what if we were deeply encouraged not only by God helping us to endure suffering and affliction, what if we were as encouraged when God helps somebody else endure suffering and affliction? Here's a question for us to ponder What should we celebrate as a church? It's good to celebrate child dedications and weddings, but our best celebrations, our best celebrations should be when a sinner saved by grace is baptized in that tank, right? Our best celebrations should be when God answers a prayer that all of us have been praying for for years. Uh, our best celebrations should be when God doesn't answer a prayer, and yet we are trusting and rejoicing for his will to be done. Our best celebrations should be when two believers who have had a conflict settle that and resolve and forgive one another. Our best celebrations should be when somebody's long-fought battle with sin starts to turn a corner into victory. And honestly, church, our best celebrations should be funeral when a brother or sister has walked the walk and they have endured to the end and we can say I'll see you soon you walked a good walk for us a good example now you're in glory as a pastor I feel verses 19 and 20 deeply you know you are our glory and joy but I want that and Paul wants that for you for you to feel that for each other We want you to feel that if you were away from this church family for a long time, it would feel like your heart's torn in half. We are united together in Christ. And so let me end with these words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4. Hear these words. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now hear this. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father God, we don't see you. As we talk to you right now in prayer, we wish we could. We long to see you face to face. We have no conception of what that would even be like. And yet we know from these words by the Apostle John that our love for one another in this church will be something that demonstrates you to the world. How will they know that we are disciples of Jesus if we love one another? And so, Jesus, I pray that you would unite your church. Thank you for coming to this earth, living as a human, dying the death we deserve, rising again for our sins, and to give us new life. Holy Spirit, would you unite this church family here? Would you help us to love each other better? Would you help us to love those brothers and sisters who live far away? We ask this in the good and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.